This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Today we have a great episode with Marlon Holden of Graylight. Marlon is a avid bow hunter for mule deer, and we're going to talk to him about all the ins and outs of bow hunting mule deer, and it's going to be a great episode. I want to thank you guys, uh, my listeners, for all your support. I want to thank you for your emails and your comments uh, on iTunes. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, supporting my Instagram, at uh, jscottoutdoors, and my associate, at Dark Holborn. Uh, I want to thank you for all of the positive things and questions and comments that you say through my email and text and the voicemails that I get. Uh, this podcast wouldn't be possible without you guys. Uh, I also want to thank the sponsors, uh, GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit why hunters prefer GoHunt.com uh, Insider. Uh, you get unit analysis, state overviews and summaries, state rules and regulations, species summary and trophy quality, application strategy articles, email reminders and notifications, quick and easy mobile access so you can do it right on your tablet or on your phone. Uh, and you get interactive GW uh, game management unit maps. Uh, you get analysis of every season and species, five-year harvest success rates and tag quotas, satellite imagery and terrain photos, camping and lodging recommendations, details on access and access issues, real-time rain and drought tracking. You get free gear and hunt giveaways. You get a free go hunt hat. And of course, if you sign up using the J. Scott promo code, you get a $50 free Kuyu gift card that you can use to buy Kuyu gear. Um, guys, sign up for GoHunt.com Insider. Three easy steps to get the Kuyu gift certificate. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Insider. Click Join Now button. Use the promo code J. Scott at checkout, and you'll get that free Kuyu gift card. Um, you're going to get complete state coverage, interactive maps, strategy articles, and species breakdowns. Not to, not to also mention uh, the hunt giveaways. Uh, they've already given away a doll sheep hunt, uh, some rifles, uh, some binoculars. Uh, they're doing a, a four-week uh, four-hunt giveaway. They've already given away an antelope hunt. Uh, they're giving away a mule deer hunt. And um, just a lot of great things going on at GoHunt.com. And so sign up on Insider when you're researching your units. Uh, you won't be disappointed. I also want to thank DeadeyeOutfitters.com for their sponsorship of this podcast. And it's important to know that without their sponsorship, this podcast wouldn't, wouldn't be what it is. Uh, so without the listeners and without the sponsors, um, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Uh, Deadeye Outfitters is lifestyle apparel for hunters by hunters. Deadeye Outfitters creates quality t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats designed with hunters in mind. They also um, are the only licensed Boone and Crockett apparel um, uh, creator, and uh, they do all of the stuff for all of the um, uh, clothing and, and uh, 
uh, marketing for uh, Boone and Crockett and their apparel line. So uh, I've been getting great feedback from you listeners um, using the J. Scott promo code and receiving a 10% discount on merchandise purchased at DeadeyeOutfitters.com. And I want to thank you guys for supporting those sponsors. So let's get right to the episode. And I want to thank you guys again for listening. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got a really cool episode. I've got Marlon Holden of the graylighthunter.com and Marlon is um, someone that I've been wanting to talk to on the podcast here for some time and he, he really has a passion for bow hunting mule deer. So I can't wait to uh, talk to him about all of his experiences hunting mule deer and uh, what's interesting about Marlon is he hunts uh, all sorts of terrain of mule deer that they live in from the high country to the low country to low deserts. So it's going to be a good episode. Um, Marlon, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you tonight? Oh, doing just fine. I'm excited to have you on here. Um, Marlon, why don't you tell me a little bit about um, your background uh, growing up? And um, I know you have a little bit different uh, past or history, so to speak, maybe than what the norm is for hunters. Uh, but in the short amount of time that you have hunted, you have had an incredible amount of success. So I'm real curious to hear about your background. Uh, Jay, yeah, I, I do, uh, I do get that often. Um, and as a general rule, I've been raised in the outdoors, not in the conventional sense because I was born in Hawaii, uh, in 1978. And you know, I was always raised around fishing for big blue marlin. I've caught several thousand uh, giant elephant tuna, above 250 pounds commercially. We did uh, a lot of marlin fishing in tournaments. I've caught two granders, two blue marlin over 1,000 pounds, and several, like hundreds over 500 to 800 pounds over the years and kind of groomed myself into the fishing, hunting the water side of things, eventually getting my captain's license. So I, I was always hunting on the ocean. That was a kind of a given for me being that, you know, I was trapped on an island for so many years. Hunting um, has only been in my life for right at around nine years. So I I didn't really do it before that, so to speak, not in the conventional wisdom of you grab a bow, you go out and hunt, you camouflage and all your gear and everything. This is a a little bit of a new thing for me. Um, And uh, I like to take on challenges. I think that's basically it. At the end of the day, I love a challenge. If it's something that seems impossible or, or unlikely to be highly successful, that's usually something that I will really dive into and try and spearhead. Uh, that's uh, what turns me on. So didn't have a, a father or a mother who hunted, didn't come from a hunting background with regard to Western bid game. And um, I thought it was the perfect pursuit. What's next? If you're great on the ocean fishing, uh, let's go to, let's go to terrestrial, you know, the land and, and try and see if we can accomplish the same feats there. So was it pretty much just, you pushing yourself and pushing your limits and wanting to see what else you could accomplish? Uh, or was it the fact that you, did you get a little bit burnt out on fishing and, and you wanted to, to seek some new pursuits? I absolutely got burnt out on fishing. Um, you know, I, for many years, was paid a, a really great income to run these private yachts. Um, and being a captain is, is, is pretty awesome because at the end of the day, you know, in your heart that just like as if you were a guide for a big game animal if you found a 420 inch bull and and harvested that bull 
for a client, you know, at the end of the day, it was because of your hard work and work ethic that you knew where that animal would be. If you're the one that had the bone or the tag in your hand, you go get it done. The kind of same goes for being a captain on the boat. When you win a, you know, a dollars $500,000 tournament, you know that it was your brains and understanding how to read the sign in order to get you in a position to be able to uh, actually take that, that um, fish and win the tournament. And if you do that consist- consistently over and over and over again, you have a tendency to have a, a very large degree of confidence in your abilities. So I, I got to that point in the ocean um, where it wasn't a, a matter of if. Uh, there was no factor of if. It was a certainty. It just had, you know, the work ethic to put in the time to make it happen. Hunting was a new pursuit to me. It wasn't something where I had to guide anybody. It didn't have anything to do with making money. I don't make money off of hunting. I don't care to make money off of hunting. I do it because I love it. And it presented a, an intense challenge. Um, no, I did not have mentors. I still don't have mentors. I don't look up to anybody. I don't have any heroes. Um, you know, this is something where I just, I'm overly confident in almost every single part of my life, whether it's professionally or otherwise, if I put my head to it, I just want to go do it. And so the hunting, uh, came into my life and presented such a great degree of challenge, uh, that I couldn't escape the fact that I wanted to see if I could present those obstacles to myself and succeed within them. That's it. And Marlon, so starting out, uh, you had to start somewhere. Tell me about maybe some of the challenges uh, that hit you right off the bat and maybe what your first hunt was, uh, your first pursuit uh, with a bow or with a rifle. Tell me how that all went down. So I've never rifle hunted. Um, there's nothing wrong with rifle hunting, and, and I, I've covered that before and several different things that I've done. I think we're all brethren. Uh, in the field, I do believe that we all have our place and that whatever weapon that you choose uh, is perfectly fine. However, I really um, migrated towards the dedication and the commitment and the level of uh, respect for the animal that you have with a bow. And the, the reason why I say level of respect is that with a bow, you really have to understand that animal to a much greater degree. Um, with a rifle, you know, you have to know how to shoot well. Uh, with a bow, you have to understand the mannerisms of an animal. You have to understand ear position, body posture, even leg position in order to get the right uh, angle to vitals. You have to be close enough to where you have to be able to read how tense the muscles are on the animal uh, to know whether or not it's going to be able to either present you with a good shot or duck your string. Um, and you have to understand their behavior and habits so that that way you can get yourself where you need to be in a certain amount of time so you don't end up um, putting yourself in a position where that animal is going to get uh, itself to a position where you're no longer able to stalk it. So if they change beds or things of that nature, generally speaking, from what I've witnessed and gathered and from what I personally understand of hunting with, uh, you know, with a rifle, it's just a little bit easier. Um, if you're a really good shot, you know, you have the ability to pretty much with certainty, if you find the animal that it's going to die, kind of consider it grocery shopping to a degree. Um, but again, it's not a, it's not a, a bow hunter, rifle hunter mentality to me. We're all brothers in the field. I don't care what you use, have great respect for uh, all of us. There's plenty of room for all of us. I just like the challenge. So when I got in to bow hunting, uh, to kind of go back and answer your question, it had more to do, Jay, with the fact that I was intrigued with a new pursuit and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I thought that bows were pretty cool. 
fling this stick at, you know, back then probably 260, 270 feet per second was a, a pretty quick bow. Um, and, and getting close to an animal and being able to harvest it with a bow was intriguing. I didn't even know how to re- read sign. I didn't know, you know, what uh, dew claws meant. I didn't know what it meant if you had a short hoof that was splayed out. I didn't know what it meant if you had a long hoof. I didn't know what it meant if you had a deep impression. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, I didn't know how to gauge the age of sign. I didn't even know what a game trail was. I didn't know the difference between an elk, or uh, not even elk, but a deer trail versus a bear trail. Uh, I didn't know where on the mountain you were looking, why you were supposed to look there. It was just a complete instinctual, okay, let's start from the bottom up. Let's build a foundation and see what we can do. Um, And that kind of started in uh, the foothills of Southern California. Uh, Notoriously horrible. That's where you were living at the time, Marlon? I live here now. I'm I'm in Orange County. Okay. Um, You put camouflage on and people think you're, you know, uh, a a terrorist or something. They they freak out. (laughs) Go to the gas station and you have your Kuyu on and guess what? They're staring at you like you're a a pretty strange character. That's okay with me. I like what Southern California has to offer. I like being able to live here, be able to have all the, you know, the luxuries of of having everything at your fingertips, but then go on six to eight, ten trips a year and just go where you want. You know what I mean? That's okay with me. Um, but I mean, I, dynamically, I didn't have the ability to go all over the place then. And so naturally I would start, you know, within an hour or two of home and, uh, we were hunting Pacific hybrids. They're basically little black tail mule deer cross. Uh, they don't, they don't get recognized in the book. I'm not much for the book. Anyhow, it doesn't really bother me either way, but it was a, it was a challenge. It was a pursuit. It was kind of like, uh, the learning grounds, so to speak. Um, and I just went out in the hills and tried to soak up as much as I could and understand to the best of my abilities what sign I was looking for and, and trying to witness behavior. Um, winter range, migration, desert, high country, that was all just kind of like a dream, right? You just pick up a, a magazine or look at a forum and just look at these big pictures of velvet deer and, and hardhorn deer in the rut. And to me, it was just uh, kind of like, a, what is that? That's That's... That's nuts, you know. That that's that's unreal. That that happens out there. And had no idea about any of it. So it was such a huge, convictive, intriguing thing for my, my mind to to grasp. That I had to dive in head first and learn as much as I could about it. So these hybrid blacktails that you were chasing, and and I'm just speculating here. Um, probably their antlers were were not very big. Um, you know, a trophy buck is probably far less than maybe a lot of the mule deer that you chase now. Um, what kind of, uh, habits or behavioral patterns would you say that when you started out on those, on those, uh, hybrid blacktails, how do they compare to the mule deer that you chase now? And I I believe you've harvested over 40 bucks with your bow. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm curious on the deer that you started out with, how maybe they seem to be different than the deer you chase now. You know, as far as quantity of numbers, I think you're you're right in the wheelhouse. It's somewhere in that number. I candidly don't sit there and keep a journal and keep track of exactly how many, but there's there's a lot. Um, You know, generally I try and make it a goal of taking at least five a year, travel to different states, and just make it happen. You can make uh, you can take two in uh, California a year. States that are really cool, like Idaho, you have the opportunity to take two. 
um, and just go to as many states as you can and, and try and find the biggest buck on public land that you possibly can. That, that's kind of my goal uh, because usually I just survive off the scraps like everyone else. I'm a blue collar hunter. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not uh, getting drawn for all these special tags every year. I, I kind of just watch the points pile up and I watch point creep pile up and I just sit there and deal with it like everybody else. So I'll get over the counter general tags and, and have as much fun as I can. And during that time, I think I've, I don't know, killed a dozen to 15 bucks that are well over Pope and Young. And um, I don't really care too much about the classification, so to speak, or the score. I think characters, you know, what I'm looking at. But kind of going to answer your question about blacktails and how they're different than mule deer or high country or desert. Um, yes, you're right. They're a lot smaller in stature. Uh, fully grown male Pacific hybrid is probably in the neighborhood of 140 pounds max. Like I mean, I'm talking, he's a fat one. Usually they're probably around a buck 20. I would akin them a lot to a coup deer. Um, okay. okay. Very, very unimpressive. But if you know what you're looking at, one can be amazing. Um, after a while, after a few years, I kind of got tired of killing them because people would just say, well, okay, well, that's a nice little meal deer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, uh, in the, in the California records book, I'm going to have three bucks that are, I have one in the top 10 and two that'll at the, at that time there was three in the top 10. I think it's been pushed down to where I'm in the team somewhere, but I have three bucks that are really, really high in the record book. And, you know, you'd look at them and they're sure they're 140 inch deer, but people look at them and go, well, that's a little meal deer, you know, but over here you've accomplished like the Holy grail and, and it never really gets looked at. So it's kind of one of those things where I, you know, started branching out and looking at places that uh, I could hunt mule deer in California over the counter that presented me with the ability to actually hunt, you know, a true mule deer strain versus um, a hybrid strain. And uh, characteristic wise, um, you know, unless you're dealing with migrating deer, Jay, there's really not uh, a huge difference with mule deer, blacktail, uh, high country mule deer, desert mule deer, and, and, and then low desert mule deer. I consider um, you know, a true desert mule deer to be in, in Sonoran, like sagebrush, creosote, Palo Verde type country versus, you know, rolling sagebrush, which to me is high desert. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, you're in between, you know, they don't classify them as desert mule deer, even the, the deer up uh, in the Grand Canyon, they can classify them as Rockies, correct? Correct. So yeah, I mean, so, so taking all those different <clears throat> classifications, you look at them as deer and the places that they inhabit, not as much as like, oh, I got to go kill a croaky or I got to kill a rocky or I got to kill a... You're just looking at them as deer. You're not really concerned about the record book, so to speak. You do want to harvest, you know, mature animals. You do want to harvest animals that have character. That's what I'm getting from what you're saying. All day long. You got me spot on. Yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not chasing any type of slam or anything like that. That that doesn't uh, appeal to me. I'm just, uh, I'm a deer hunter. Uh, through and through that's really what i enjoy to, to pursue and so all these different states that you try and go and seek the over-the-counter opportunities i also hear you saying that you do apply in the draw states but having started only nine years ago uh your points have not added up where you've been able to draw some premium tags but you still apply for them and if you draw you will go and and try and harvest the coolest deer you can find you, you've got that spot on i mean I, I don't have a tag strategy or an application strategy if i get lucky i get lucky um, i usually put in for around 40 tags a year something like that 
Um, and I have a lot of points built up, but you know, there's so many people that have been doing this for so much longer than I have that the pool is so much greater and deeper that my chances of really getting into those good tags are pretty slim. Um, and I don't really, I cognizantly don't really care if I draw those tags. I enjoy hunting units that I've grown to love and know. They're almost like a homage, so to speak. They become uh, something that's put into you and into your system as something that you grow to love and enjoy. And a draw tag is great because you're looking for age class of a managed genetic that you know has the ability to produce, but you know the likelihood of going back there again isn't as great. Uh, it might be once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime, or if it's you know a mediocre unit, you might be able to get it three or four times. And to me, that's not really what I'm after. I, I learned that if I'm simply dedicated in an over-the-counter unit and I focus on genetics and I focus on certain canyons with the right genetics and I focus on the attributes of the age class within that unit that's not being messed with by the masses, I can still achieve the same result you can get on a, a limited entry tag. I mean, maybe not the Henry's or the Strip, but uh, really good age class animals to be able to be hunted every year with the research and you become to know that unit and, and have it ingrained in your system so well that um, you have, uh, I think, a greater chance of harvesting the buck of your dreams there than you would if you drew that once in a lifetime tag. And I think it means more to you because of the work and the effort you put into it. So uh, tag strategy is not really necessarily part of my, my hunting system, but I do it, um, I guess, mostly out of habit. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I probably should. Uh, it would be kind of a uh, a fool not to, I would think. Um, so I, I put in for the points, and if I draw one day, great. If I don't, no big deal. Let's talk about you. You'd mentioned something, and not talking about state specific or anything like that. But for the listeners out there that are just getting into it, like you did, uh, if if you were to talk about, let's say, let's talk about a, several different types of areas that you would hunt deer. Um, if you were talking about high alpine, you know, above timberline, that type of country, uh, what are some things that you look for when, when trying to find an area to hunt? I mean, are there specific topographical features and steep canyons, gradual canyons, big basins? You know, what do you look for um, in more of a general macro type of, 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 of thing? What, Rather than like this state and over here by this county or whatever, just in general, what are you looking for? You know, trail systems. Are you looking for no trail systems? Or you know, give give the listeners that 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 are just starting their quest maybe some tips uh, that that have helped you. Okay, and and that's that's a very fair question. I think that that's uh, something that everybody wants to know about. Um, and I've never really covered it in all that much detail. So I think you're you know you're you're hitting the nail that, that a lot of people are really interested in, especially nowadays that this high country thing is really uh, more in the limelight. Um, so high country to me was something that uh, held a lot of mystery, right? It's one of those things that seems like the pinnacle uh, of mule deer hunting. You know, you can harvest a giant deer on the strip and people go, oh, well, I expect that on a strip. You go up in the high country um and it's uh, it, it's almost like uh, no man stepped foot on it before, uh, except for an elite few, and it seems like almost impossible. It's very um, it's very liberating country. It's also 
very much so a spirit breaker if you allow it to be. Um, I've seen people go up there with all their fancy gear, draw the tag, get all excited, pumped up about it, forum surf for months, scour Google Earth, go up there and get their tails beat in, and, and within two or three days they're heading home because of altitude sickness or you know, not seeing what they want to see. I mean, it, it, it is a different quest, uh, unlike anything that human beings have ever pursued on this earth with a bow and arrow. Um, and uh, I, I found it as the ultimate challenge. Um, now, as far as what I'm looking for, I look for seclusion. I don't care about trail systems because really I, I'll never, for the most part, I would say 80% of the time I don't use trails. Um, sometimes I'll use existing Jeep roads to get me access to certain parts of the country. However, I love nothing more than truthfully getting a 6,000 cubic inch pack and loading that sucker up with eight to 10 days worth of food and hitting the trail and hiking in eight to 10, 12 miles. Uh, this August, I'm going to be hiking in to an over-the-counter unit in California. It takes 14.3 miles just to get to the base camp and you're going to hunt from camp. It's wilderness, and um, there's big bucks there, and you're above 11,000 feet in giant granite country. Um, Colorado, you know, uh, Utah, uh, Wyoming, Montana, all presents amazing high country. And um, it's the kind of country that really compels me as a man, as a spiritual person. It elicits some amazing um, experiences and and you know you talk deeper about your own li- inner libido if you're in touch with yourself of who you are this country is so grand and on such a scale that it makes you feel like you're ultimately free and it's god's church uh, it's an amazing place and i love to be there and, and what i'm looking for is more of the seclusion aspect um, what big bucks are looking for up there is they're looking for isolation they're looking for safety so they map out um, they they map out in their heads all their escape routes. They map out in their heads where's the nearest uh, cover, you know, where's the best feed. Um, but o- oftentimes they won't be with bachelor groups. They won't be with other deer. The deer that you really want to put yourself in position to kill are the ones that are complete loners. You know, they, they live in an offshoot. Uh, of a of a of a main basin that's say just a small avalanche chute that's only 50 yards wide, and if they're in that avalanche chute that's only 50 yards wide, you know you got to put yourself in a position to be in those areas. The fact of the matter is is that you're not looking for the big areas. You're not looking for the giant basins, okay? Because the giant basins aren't aren't where they're going to be. Nine nine times out of ten, I'm mean, sure you'll find deer here and there in country like that. But the fact that the fact is, is that, you know, the ones you end up hunting are the ones that are very reclusive. They're by themselves and they don't like company. They don't like pressure. They don't like people. They don't want to be bothered. So I'm, I'm looking for something special or unique about the country. Um, not necessarily a particular unit. A lot of people get tied up and, Oh, what unit are you in? Um, I gotta be honest. It's not about the unit. I'd say, just about every high country unit that's above 12,000 feet has the ability to carry what you're looking at. Most likely in score, uh, in genetics, and age class. And there are different units with genetics. I'll say that. And there are different units that are managed more specifically for age class. But overall, if 
you're looking for that top end buck, you can just about find it in any high country unit. So, so what guys, I hear you saying is, is that, and sorry to interrupt, but what I hear you saying is if you're willing to go steep and deep and you're willing to get way back in there and you're willing to get in those big back basins and those, you know, avalanche chutes and those rough country above timberline, you're saying that because of the, the how secluded some of those areas are, uh, that the bucks that most people would dream to shoot are there. They just got to get themselves to get up there, train to get up there, and then have the mental fortitude to stay up there in the elements and the lightning and everything else. You know, for the most part. Um, I will say that I'll go through four, five, six basins, cover 50, 60 miles on foot, before I even find a basin that has what I'm looking for in it. And some of the basins won't even have deer and it'll be pristine. You'll have uh, the age class, your willows, pretty important. Your forb, uh, your forb fields, your flower fields, those are really important too. But the high country has a, a miracle of being able to provide a lot of salad bars everywhere. And it's up to you to understand why they're using the willows the way they are. Deer love willows. Those high country muleys, they, they thrive on the willows. They, they're, you know, browsers, not grazers. So they're usually, they'll, they'll look for those willows that aren't of uh, an extreme age class. If you start seeing a lot of willows that are over six to 10 feet, you're probably not going to see as many deer in there as you'd think. And you're going to look at it and go, wow, this is amazing country. Um, you're looking for more of the Krumholtz, waist high to chest high willow type areas with uh, natural springs and uh, big rock walls and cliffs with escape routes in them in the high country. And, and you're going to find a lot of deer that use that country because they can basin jump. They can go through an avalanche chute and run up to a cornice and escape and be able to get away and be able to have what they need in order to survive and elude predators. Now that's going to be, you know, your, your 180 and up type buck. There's tons of 160, 170 stuff running around. And nowadays I'm doing the best that I can to pass that stuff up, trying the best I can. Cause I don't have anything over 186. So I haven't killed like a big deer yet. I'm, I'm struggling to try and kill. I have probably four deer over 180, but um, I can't seem to eclipse 186. It's just, in my Achilles heels drive me nuts and it's something that uh, scores and everything but now that as I'm I'm mature in hunting I'm looking for unique character mass age class genetics things of that things of, of those categories and naturally I'm trying to eclipse the, the, the last harvested buck to the, to the next and I want it to graduate larger so um, I'm really trying to put myself in position to capitalize on those and I think I'm getting there. Um, you know, it's just an evolution and process. You know, what I hear, uh, not having really talked to you very much at all before this podcast, um, maybe once to try and set this up, I, I hear a lot of drive and I hear a lot of intelligence in some of the things that you're saying. And I, I want to get back to what you were saying about the mule deer, but real fast i wanted to ask you about your inner drive and because i hear it in your voice um we've been talking now for 30 minutes and i just hear it what is it that makes you just crazy about these deer is, is it any, even anything you can put words into um but i hear 
I hear just passion and I hear, I hear drive. Um, you know, to everybody that's going to listen to this, Jay, I've, I've had an incredibly challenging life, um, fraught with obstacles that are to the degree that candidly, it's something that's better enjoyed speaking person to person, friend to friend versus sitting there talking. I mean, I've, I've been not only do I have a great relationship with my parents, but my, my bring, upbringing is um, foster homes, is gangs, is uh, fighting, is uh, everything that you would think would set your kid up to be um, set up for a really challenging, difficult life, not being given anything. I was homeschooled uh, all through my life until my junior year of high school. I did sail around the world on a 58 foot sailboat and experienced challenging conditions with the weather with storms that would scare the living daylights out of anybody. And at an early age, I learned, my dad told me that, um, you never panic because panic will kill you. He told me that if you panic and you don't think about it, it could be the last decision you ever made. And you're going to wish you had done something differently, but it would be too late. So I've had, the ability to be on a 58 foot sailboat, 500, 450 miles, 500 miles from shore, um, you know, with 80 to 90 knot winds where the ocean's covered in white and the, the swells are 50 foot, you know, uh, 20 to 30 foot with occasional 50 to 60 foot sets that would come through and crash over the boat. And at any moment, you know, you're literally hanging on to life by, by a thread. And that's not a joke. And we didn't have electronics. We didn't have, you know, this was before, um, GPS. We didn't have SatNav. We didn't have Loran. We didn't have a radio that we could reach out to anybody. There's no Coast Guard help. Uh, if the ship goes down, the ship goes down and you go down with it. And you have ditch bags put in a life raft, but when a boat goes down in conditions like that, being able to deploy a life raft and get your ditch bags in there, you put it out there for preventative caution, but the fact of the matter is you're probably not going to get them. I had to deal with life at an early age when most kids were hanging out in a truck with their dad hunting or doing softball or basketball or my life when I was a young kid really kind of fortified and galvanized who I am as a man. I'm glad I went through every challenge I, I did. I have the most incredible relationships with my family that I could ever imagine. Um, but we went through a lot of hardship. See, my, my parents were more uh, like uh, nomads. They didn't care about working a steady job for retirement, a pension. They were fly. My dad was a rock and roll musician. My mom's an artist. And um, so my mom is extremely successful, has uh, art galleries all over the, you know, West Coast, New York, Japan, Catalina Island. All, they, she has galleries everywhere. My dad used to be in a rock and roll band. So he, he, they're both artists. They're both abstract thinkers. But that's landed them in a lot of crap in the earlier years. Um, I'm more of the analytical. I have a passionate artistic side. I love photography. I love sculpture. I love uh you know, oil and canvas. I do all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, to answer your question with passion and drive, I went out. I went without so much as a kid that I told myself when I'm able to, I'm never, that's never going to happen to me. I'm grateful for the fact that when I was younger, I, I learned four languages. I visited over 30 countries. I saw cultures like nobody's ever seen second and third world degree cultures, people that you know, they don't even care about money. They'd rather have a water jug and diapers because those are practical things that they can use to survive on a daily basis. 
Um, so I just, I come from a background that's intrinsically much different than your normal American upbringing. And when I say American, I mean United States. I don't mean North or South America or Central America. See, we, this whole continent's America, right? We, we just happen to be in, in North America. So, um, you know, the things that I look at that challenge me as a man, uh, the drive comes from the fact that I've had a very difficult life. And when people say things are difficult, um, you know, I look at it and kind of smirk and say to my own self internally, and, and everybody has struggle. And if you haven't had a lot of struggle in your life uh, and, and something happens, like you get a DI or DUI or somebody, you know, beats you up in school or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, you lose a family member to something uh, that can be challenging. I mean, that's going to be the, the most dramatic thing that ever happened in that person's life. And for them, it's going to be very dramatic. Um, I tend to handle things like that without a big deal thinking, well, that's, you know, that's life. It's what happens. You just deal with it and you keep on going. Um, I don't drink, never done drugs. I'm not into that kind of thing. I'm very, if anything, narcissistic. Uh, I have a high level and view of self. My worth, my value um, cannot be measured in a salary. Uh, I think that salaries are pathetic. I think that salaries are for worker bees. I'm not interested in that. Uh, I like being self-employed. I like busting my butt and knowing that whatever I'm going to get out of life has to do with what I put into it. And I'm never going to accept mediocrity. If somebody tells me I can't do it, that's just a foundation to blow them out of the water and say, sorry, I am going to do it. And if you don't like it, go pound sand because you mean nothing to me. Um, you know, the, the certainty and that drive comes from the fact that things were difficult. Things were a challenge. And when something presents a challenge, I, I destroy it. I'll absolutely annihilate it. I don't care what it is. I don't care whether it's skateboarding, surfing, fishing, spearfishing, hunting, you know, my career, family, raising uh, my son. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to do it not only well, but I'm going to be the best that I can possibly be and blow all of the, um, I guess, social taboos completely out of the water. I want to crush it in everything I do. I will not accept the fact that, oh, it's okay, you tried as hard as you could. To me, that's failure. To me, failure is not an option. You never quit. You never stop until you achieve your goal, ever. If one thing is going to be the takeaway here for success, if you believe in it and that's what you want, you better not stop. Because for everybody that's out there that's extremely successful, everyone listening to this needs to know that at some point in time, every successful pe person failed several times, multitudes of times. They failed at the task, but they didn't quit. And the, the more times you fail and the more times you put your mental fortitude and your your galvanization to the test. You're that much closer to becoming the most incredible human being that you ever thought you could imagine in your entire life. And you're closer to being able to fulfill whatever personal destiny or goal that you have, whether it's harvesting a big mule deer, whether it's being the best father you can be, whether it's, whether it's nailing a job interview. It doesn't matter. You have to be able to be so confident that before you even start, it's a success in your head. And for me, everything I do is already successful before it's even done. And that's why whether I go to work and grind out uh, a living or whether I go to the mountain and grind out a buck, I don't care what it is. I'm going to win. And there's literally not one person that can stop me from doing it.
It's absolute 100% confidence. And that's how I live. I live. Nobody will tell me no. Telling me no is like almost giving me a gas, a jug of gasoline. It's that, it's that empowering to me. It's that passionate to me. It's that much of a driving force to me. Haters fuel me. There's a lot of people that said what I do is impossible. And I just say, keep it coming because all you're doing is empowering me. I take negative energy and I turn it to gold every time. It doesn't bother me. I, I mean, ever since the end of the archery seasons and the, the desert hunting stopped, I put in 36 days on the desert floor, scouting, setting up cameras, looking at different terrain, looking at sign, analyzing it. Because as it pertains to our conversation, we're talking about hunting, not making money. If you want to talk about making money, I can tell people how to do that too. I'm sure you could too. Because you, you share that same mindset, Jay. The fact of the matter is, is that failure is inevitable. Quitting is never an option. You do whatever it takes because I've been in so many situations where my life depended on it that I know that if it's something, something as simple as raising a family, making money, or killing deer, it's a done deal, man. It's a done deal. It's non-negotiable. It's going to happen. And that's what I see lacking in most people's existence. They don't believe in themselves. They don't have passion or faith that if they do the best that they can, they're going to win. You have to be your own motivational speaker. You have to sit there in your own head on the mountain and say, this is going to happen. I'm going to do it. And you can't be an idiot about it. There's two attributes that I'm going to tell you about. I've talked about them before, but one of them's attitude. The other one's ability. I call them the two A's. I live by them. If you don't have one of them, you're never going to win. Because if you have... The best attitude in the world doesn't mean you have the right ability to get it done, to execute, to perform, to manifest the idea into the reality, okay? Likewise, if you have the best, most incredible form in the whole world and you slay the living crap out of 3D targets and, you know, you rack up the most incredible scores, winning all these medals and everything, you go up into the high country and you're there with all your great gear and your fancy optics and, and you're just going for it but you don't have the ability or the attitude, you're going to fall apart. You're going to get thrown in your pin and check yourself back off the mountain because you couldn't make it happen. You have to have both, period. So passion and drive and, and, you know, never quit. Yeah, that's in my DNA. It's never going to stop. No matter who I talk to, no matter when I talk to them, no matter how I feel about it, that is my essence with everything that I do. I have so much passion and so much vigor and so much conviction in it. That, that's really me. That's what you're listening to when you get me. When you talk about hunting, hunting deer is easy with a bow. It's like ridiculous. I, and I know that sounds cocky and arrogant and weird and, and people aren't going to be used to it because, you know, they think of it as this ridiculous challenge, but it's not. It, it's not hard. You, you just have to sit there and tell yourself before you go into it that it's going to be done. And every day, get up. Don't go back to camp. Don't take a nap. Don't Don't get lazy don't allow yourself to fall into a, a grind and say oh well, i've been glassing this canyon not seeing anything and oh, i've been covering so much country and my legs are ready to give it a rest you know the only time you give yourself a rest is when the season's over and you didn't get your buck and you busted your butt trying but you never gave up you never quit other than that don't allow it it's, it's not people hate hunting with me they, they absolutely despise hunting with me because i'll grind it out until i until i win I don't care about stopping. I don't care about sleeping. I don't even care about eating. I'll, I'll literally pop a half a dozen Werther's chocolate, like hard candies in my pocket 
in the morning. And throughout the day, I'll just try and, when I start getting a little shaky, I'll pop a couple of them just to keep my sugar level up so that way when I need to shoot, I can shoot without shaking to death. I mean, I, I'm totally just extreme. I'm an extremist with everything I do. It doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's loving, I love passionately. Whether it's hunting, I hunt passionately. Whether it's being a captain, I'm a captain fishing passionately. If I'm a friend, if I'm your friend, I'm the best friend you're ever going to have because I will never let you down. But that's part of just being in different things in life. You know, I've had pirates chase us off the coast of Colombia and Venezuela. We were in a sailboat. They were in a 50-mile-an-hour speedboat. You know what literally saved our lives? No. We had 12-foot head seas with 45-knot winds going into it. We could only do seven knots. We had 50% sail because we had to be reefed because there was so much wind, and the the seas were so short together that in a sailboat, you just can't go fast. So they have the speedboats, 30-foot speedboat. They're all carrying AKs. They all have camouflage and red bandanas, and they're sending lead through the air past us at a half a mile out. And this freaking speedboat, 20 miles off the coast of Columbia. And the only thing that saved us is the fact that it's like David and Goliath, man. It's like the rabbit and the turtle. And <laughs> it, I'm, I mean, there's so many things that I can come up with in life to tell you these stories that are, that are just so, like, they're so empowering they galvanize me so much that nothing can stop me. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we're only doing seven knots. But so every time happened? that they would try and juice it, every time they'd try and get those motors to freaking kick that boat in high gear to get to us, I mean, literally, we had bullet holes in our sails. Lead was flying through the air. They were trying to get us, dude. They were going to take our boat. They were going to kill us, throw us overboard, and steal everything. It was pretty common. It was something that happens. It happens when you're out in the world. And you know, the fact of the matter is, is that every time they'd pin it, their boat would fly off the top of a 12-foot swell and slam into the next one, and they'd all fall to the ground and get completely screwed up. And then they'd try and recover and keep going, so they couldn't go fast enough to get to us. And as the night proceeded, the winds got higher, the swells got rougher, and because we were in a 62-ton boat, and they were a sailboat with a big keel that was super heavy, we could go seven knots, but we could penetrate that sea. And they were in a 30-foot speedboat that was light, maybe 10 tons, 5 tons, right? And every time they'd go through it, it's like trying to put a paper cup in a lake. So it was just beating the tar out of them. Beating the crap out of them. It was 4 a.m. and the sun was almost ready to come up by the time the lights and the distance from where they were to us were fading, 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 fading all night long until they faded into the distance they were gone. And you know what the creepiest thing about it is, Jay? Hmm. The creepiest thing about it is that after those lights faded away and it was light outside, you want to call call it diurnal shift, you want to call it the low-pressure system, the high-pressure system, decided to change, uh, you know, its intensity, call it whatever you want. But within, by noon that day, the seas had calmed to where they were like two to three feet and like next to no wind. So they'd have had you. They would have killed us. We had a 45 pistol on the boat. That's not much of a match for AKs. It's not going to do anything except for sit there and watch your family get slaughtered. Yeah. I've seen like a lot of weird stuff in life, and I've been through a lot of weird experiences, and not always in the U.S. I mean, talking about different countries and watching people struggle and starve, and I've also seen a lot of beautiful things. 
you know what I mean? Lots of culture, uh, lots of amazing country, beautiful places and learning languages and being dynamic as a kid and understanding that, hey, this kid speaks Portuguese. I don't know Portuguese. How am I going to find something? Because I don't have anybody else to play with. How am I going to find something in common with this kid so that way he can speak his language? I'm speaking mine. What do we find in common in order to do something together so we can go out and have some fun? That's what I did dynamically as a kid. So I don't have a problem engaging with people, no matter what it is, and finding something in common, and just let's have a good time. You know, let, let's find the common ground here. That's why I don't get in this pissing match about whether you shoot with a rifle or a bow. Look, we all love it. Let's stop fighting each other. Let's have fun with this. It's not about how much it scored. It's not about where you got it. I don't care what unit it was in. You worked hard, didn't you? The answer going to be yes. Did you have fun? The time of my life. Do we share that inside as brothers? Yes. Okay, what are we bickering about? Let's go have fun. So my dynamic, my passion, my drive, it's all a mix of everything, okay? And, you know, yes, I am very, very much so convictive about it because I've seen over and over how powerful your mind is if you're programming it right. If you don't program it right, you're going to be like everybody else and just fall into the crowd as being one of those people that it's okay working at a coal mine or okay working at a factory or okay working for a job where somebody doesn't take your name and say, hey, you did a fantastic job. I don't care for anybody to tell me I did a fantastic job. I'm going to go out there and make my destiny. And whether somebody likes it or not, it's just going to happen. So I am. So I didn't mean to make that long-winded. I didn't mean to no, make I mean, Marlon. you know, think anything that, that's strange. But it's just that's why I go out and do what I do, Jay, because if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. If you're not going to do it, then stay home. You know that all all of what you've been saying, it's it's got to be one of the most intriguing conversations that I've had on, you know, 47 podcasts or whatever so far. Um, very intriguing stuff. Uh, stuff that really makes you think, but it's it, it 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 really puts things in perspective when you've been shot at by pirates and trying to figure out how to kill that deer that's bedded down there at 100 yards from you become, now I, I can see what you're saying by it becomes easy. In talking about your attitude and ability, when you're talking specifically about ability, what things did you have to learn very quickly as far as stalking i'm 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 real curious about wanting to hear um talking about your ability do you stalk a deer when he's bedded do you stalk a deer when he's feeding what do you look for when you make your plan of attack to try and kill that deer today i'm looking for opportunity so i'm looking for a chink in the armor okay uh, generally speaking uh anybody who wants to try and stalk a deer on their feet with a bow, your chances go down quite a bit. Can it be done? Yes. It's very difficult because as much as a deer seems like it just sits there and browses, which they do, when you're watching them through a scope, it looks pretty and you're, you know, a thousand, two thousand yards away and you got your scope pinned on them at 45 power and it looks like he's just feeding along, no big deal. Well, when you actually start to plan, try and put that mo that plan together, you have two obstacles, okay? You have wind and terrain. Now, there's also noise and all kinds of other crap, too, but let's focus on wind and terrain for a second. So, generally speaking, in the morning, a deer is always going to be feeding towards his bedding area if he's not already there. A mature buck, generally speaking, is already in his bed by first light. But 
let's say for instance, you got a bachelor group of, you know, 140 to 180 bucks and you got two that are in there that you'd feel, yeah, I'd be pretty confident with. And you think that you have enough time before they get to their betting area to get in front of them for an ambush shot. You're, you're, you know, you, you try for it, especially if it's, you know, your last one or two days, you, you go for it. You just leave it all on the field. Don't have fear. That's the biggest thing. I'm very aggressive. I am not fearful of the outcome. If you're fearful of the outcome, that means you're afraid of life. That means, oh, you're afraid I'm going to lose your job. I'm, I'm going to lose my job. Oh, I only have a little bit of money in my account. What if this happens? You know, that's the same kind of people that say, oh, geez, what if I get cancer? It's like, geez, you know, control what you can control. Um, you don't kill deer or you don't get success in anything you do without risk. So the risk and the reward are those things that we're all after. Uh, the, the risk is the part that makes your hunt, heart thump like crazy right before the shot. That, that's why we do it. If, if it stops, then I'm going to stop hunting. Um, so when you're, when you're stalking a deer on its feet, it's really important to anticipate the direction of the bed, where the bed is, and knowing that that deer is actually moving a lot faster than you think. If you're 1,000 to 2,000 yards away, by the time you actually get over to where you're in a position where you can even start your stalk, that deer is likely to move one to 200 yards, okay? Uh, and you don't know whether he's going to go to 9 o'clock, to 11 o'clock, to 7 o'clock on, on, the, on the clock from where he is. Up, down, out, around, you don't know that. Um, and so the, those equations mean that you have to be dynamically available on your feet and you better be a quick thinker because if you're not going to be a quick thinker, they're going to think for you and you're not going to get your chance. So what's important is that you can't just say, oh, I'm going to go to this stocking route and take off and execute that stocking route and get there because number one, you don't know what the wind's going to be doing there. You don't know if the diurnal shift has taken place yet and if you're going to be in a position to be able to get there before the thunderstorms get there. Or the, you know, I, I, I kind of cut my teeth on the high country. That's what I'm, I'm kind of well known for, so to speak, is, is high country. So a lot of that thunderstorm element comes into play early afternoon, whereas diurnal shift doesn't start to take place in between 8 to 10.30, sometimes 11 o'clock. So you're going to have this period of time where you're going to have like about a three-hour window, and that's being gracious. But that's usually when they're bedded. So if you're going to be doing it in the morning, you've got to realize that the diurnal shift hasn't taken place yet, right? So if the diurnal shift hasn't taken place yet, you're sitting there stocking buck, you think you have the wind right, 8, 9 o'clock, that goes swirling on you, and you blow your plan. So it's better to understand the habits and assess the situation and try and do the best that you can to actually utilize the time that you have in the most effective ways in order to make sure that, that stock's complete success. I don't, I wouldn't say to leave it all on the table and leave it all on the field unless it's the last day of your hunt. You absolutely have to like try and make something happen because you got to leave in the next few hours. There's, I've killed a lot of last day bucks, a lot of last day bucks. Um, but you know, as far as stocking them effectively and knowing uh, when to stock and how to stock, I, I would not necessarily recommend getting in front of a feeding buck. I don't think that that's going to be your your best chances of success. I shoot a lot of deer in their beds, like a ton of deer in their beds. Um, and is that a, you sneaking up and then laying with them and then um, finally getting into position, or you sneak right up and just draw back and shoot them? I shoot them in their beds. They don't get up. No, what I mean is once you're stalking and stalking and you're getting close to them in their beds, is there a period of, do you like to kind of lay with them until everything's just right? Or do you like to, as soon as you get in range and you can shoot them, you shoot them? I shoot them. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I don't. Sure. Uh, if you wait, you're just you're you're you see you're in the zone, right? You're you're. I mean, I'll do the silly wind things. is gonna kill you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, eventually you're gonna get that. That's gonna just every single. I don't care how many times you say otherwise. Eventually, the wind's gonna get you. Period on that stock. Um, so the closer you are, that margin for error just decreases like hundredfold. Um, so if you're in position and you need to do something like uh, calm your heart down or, or calm your shaking or something like that, you know, I've I've learned to do something that's, that people think I'm crazy, but I've learned to actually, you know, get to 30 yards, 18 yards, 40 yards, whatever the case may be. Uh, I mean, even 60, 70 yards, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, once you're in the spot that you're like confident, okay, this is going to happen, to calm myself down, a lot of times I'll just pull out my point and shoot camera and, and pull up my binoculars and take pictures of the buck. Think about something else. I mean, because you're really wound up at that point. You've ranged it. You know where it's at. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll just kind of put my mind at ease a little bit and say, okay, this is going to happen. Let's take some pictures because it's going to be cool to tell the story later. And then I have the ability to relive it too. Um, so a lot of times I'll take pictures of the bucks in their beds when I'm right in tight to bow range. Uh, and then after, you know, I take a few pictures, then I'll <laughs> knock an arrow and, uh, and shoot it. Um, okay. And so I want to talk to you about that exact moment on a lot of the deer that you've shot. How many of them would you consider that you were just dead calm and it was a dead, just done deal? And how many were you pretty jazzed up and juiced up? And how was the outcome when you were jazzed up? And and, and how was the outcome when you were dead calm? I, I think I know the answer, but I'm curious to what you'll say. I don't get uh, really jazzed up until after the shot. I'm absolutely 100% committed to controlling my mind to where I can't even think of a shot that I've taken. And I know that sounds, again, that's a narcissistic side that comes out. Okay. That's that overly confident side that comes out. Um, but I can't think of one deer that I've shot where I didn't know I was going to absolutely nail the crap out of it. I, I just, you know, I, I, I practice, with broadheads year round. I never use field points ever. And I won't use mechanicals because I don't believe in them because I've seen too many friends lose animals with them. And that's a different debate altogether. It's just a personal, personal, you know, a personal opinion. And it hasn't let me down for a lot of animals in a short amount of time. I mean, I, I'm, and, and this is a narcissistic comment. I don't know too many people that are more successful on mule deer with a bow than me. So how am I going to take anybody's advice? the best advice I can take is my own because I put it to the test. I put it to the ground and feet running on the ground. I'm not living in the exhaust boat, smoking mistakes. I'm looking over the dashboard and saying, Hey, this has created a lot of success. Continue to do it. Um, so to answer your question fitfully, I, I don't draw back anchor and release an arrow and not know that it's going to hit its mark. I mean, yes, I've missed, I've missed a lot. Oh my God. I remember this one deer in the high country kicked my butt. I <laughs> I was shooting the worst bow. I have hated this bow. I'm not going to say the manufacturer, but a lot of people followed me for a long time. They'll already know. Um, it, it was one of the worst bows they made. And it was a torquey, just poor excuse for a, like a, just a horrifically engineered piece of garbage. I couldn't shoot for crap. I, I spent 14 days chasing this buck. I missed him seven times. And I was, I, I, 
I literally, I felt like I was going to melt into the rocks with failure. I, I was just so, I was at such a point, you know, you almost feel destitute, like you're, you lost everything. <laughs> you, just, you just sit there and you go, this isn't happening. This is like the worst thing ever. You know, you're, you're 43 yards away from this buck. He just got up out of his bed. He's buried his face in some Indian paintbrush. You're anchored and freaking right to the left, quartered away. You're like, what the hell <laughs> just happened? And then I'll start out to 140 and look back at you. Yeah, taunting and you. you sit there and go, what the heck? This is just brutal. I, I, after 14, the 14th day, I killed him. I shot That's him 18 awesome. yards in his bed. Um, that had to be a good feeling after missing seven times. So in your practice, Marlon, do you, I, I'm trying to get at, and, and, and there may not be anything there as far as a, a routine or a ritual or anything you do, you know, your last thoughts when you, you know, you're, you're settling your pin in. Yeah. Is there any advice you can give to people in, in the execution of the shot um, from someone that's been as successful as you have, is there any tips you can give? Yeah, there's there's some really great tips I can give confidently. If you do this, you're gonna you're gonna win. Um, you know, as long as the ability is there, right? Um, it, it's very important to me that you know you see all these pictures of people shooting, and they're shooting at 30, 40, 50, 60 yards, and they're shooting with field tips you're doing yourself such an injustice. All you're doing is practicing on personal form, but you really don't know how your equipment truly operates under all conditions. No matter what anybody says, I will challenge the most educated archer on this planet. If he tells me that broadheads should fly like field points, you're full of crap. You don't know what you're talking about, and all you're doing is going off of what you think some engineer told you. They don't. When you steer the arrow on the front and the back, and not just the back, you're going to have different flight mechanics and characteristics. Wind drift, drag. No matter what, at distance, your arrow is going to hit lower. Period. Period. No matter what anybody says, you've just created drag. The arrow is going to be um, an inch to two inches lower at 70 yards, depending on your bow speed. At 100 yards, you can be about three to four inches low. Okay, period. Now, since you have a kick, whether you're doing a one degree or a three degree offset or helical, that's going to create drag as well. Uh, and the frontal side of the steering element of the arrow is going to uh, kick the arrow to the right or the left when you steer it that way. So you can't have a heel. There's no helical on the broadhead. There's some broadhead companies that do that. I'm not really into it. But the bottom line is that um, there's helical on the back. There's not helical on the front. Everybody shoots with a helical. If you, if you shoot a, a straight fletch, your arrow is going to look like a squirrel tail, just flagging all <laughs> over the place. It, 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 it won't steer. The mechanics aren't there. You have to have helical, period. I don't care whether you do um, angled or helical. That, that's not too much of a, of a game changer, but you have to have that steerage going in one direction or another, period. Um, if you don't shoot with broadheads, Every single time you shoot, sure, it destroys the crap out of targets. Yes, you destroy arrows. Yes, it's expensive. Uh, my sponsors take care of that, so I don't really care. So I guess maybe that's something that 
you know, as a luxury, but at the end of the day, I put myself in the position to be there. It's not something that just came to me and they're like, Oh, Hey, you know, here, here's some free stuff because you know, you're great. At the end of the day, you and I both know it's promotional stuff. I'm nobody special. I'm no, I'm no better than anybody else. I am not one iota better than any other man or woman listening to this right now. I'm just like you. My mindset might be different though. So I'm going to use those broadheads and I'm going to use those arrows and I'm going to understand how they operate with my bow in all kinds of situations. But that way, when I execute a shot and I draw back, I know what it's going to do. If you shoot field tips all year long, you're doing yourself a disservice because you don't know how that broadhead is going to fly. And you can say all you want that you do, but, but you don't because you're not doing it. And you're shooting these tight groups thinking, hey, I'm dialed. Look at my fletch touch at 60 yards on my fletch. Well, of course they do. And of course they do. 60, 70 yards to get your flush touch, that's easy. It's cake. It's like stupid. Like, don't even kid yourself. That, that, that's, yes, you're shooting and you're shooting arrows and you're getting good group. That means you're dialed in uh, for, for shooting foam. You're not dialed in for shooting broadheads because that group's going to turn MOA on you. 60 yards, you're going to have a six inch group. If you're good. At 100 yards, you're going to have a 10 inch group. If you're good. If you're not doing that, Start posting your pictures and let me see those 16 to 18-inch groups and be real. And let me show the missed targets because I miss the target too. And I practice with them all year. And I know that when I practice, everybody listening to this, only shoot one arrow, the first arrow, and take that one to the bank. And you start building a percentage odds in your head of what you just killed and what you didn't kill. And that's your success ratio with a broadhead, not a field point. So what I, what's my regimen? I run a third of a mile all out up a hill, put my target out, run out to my 100-yard marker, and I fling one arrow at 100 yards. And my success ratio is about 85% on a 10-inch square. That's where I achieve my results because I don't care about foam. I'm not aiming for foam, Jay. I'm aiming for a dead animal. I'm looking at vitals, okay? For me, it's very simple. It's dynamics. It's mechanics. It's anchor point. It's consistency. And knowing where that grip is, knowing how to grip the bow, knowing that that string is coming to the same point in your nose every single time, that you've got the same anchor every single time without fail like you're a damn robot. Once you do that and you execute the shot, then you can go ahead and breathe whether you missed it or you didn't. And then just start working on form, mechanics, function, uh, rest, you know, allow yourself to get in a groove and a rhythm on, okay, let's shoot a few arrows. But the only, the only arrow that's ever going to count is the first one cold out of your body. Because uh, let's face it, you're not going to get up at camp at 12,400 feet and uh, shoot two dozen arrows before you go on your hunt. <laughs> okay? Every yeah. single one of us gets up in the morning, chokes down some oatmeal, chugs some hot chocolate, starts glassing. And then, you know, we're fatigued. We're, we're carb depleted. We're energy depleted. We're cal- calorically just freaking starting to starve or our, our muscles eating itself up there for sure. Um, and then you throw in elevation, headaches. You throw in... Um, everything else that you're dealing with, there's mental strain up there. You have to understand how to deal with yourself, how to deal with your, your internal functions and how you operate as a human being. You have to understand those dynamics very well. So once you put all those into play and you have a pretty little package, why are you going to waste your time shooting field points thinking you're the man shooting foam at 60, 70, 80 yards with these tight groups only to cheat yourself a month or two before season because you don't want to pay the extra money. The only thing that's going to suffer is your, is your bank account and the animal. If you don't, so I don't want the animal to suffer and I don't care about my bank account. I'm focused on making sure I get the job done. 
and I need to know that at 100 yards every single time that I, even if I'm at 80, 85%, it doesn't matter. I, I need to know that that's a guaranteed. And do I anticipate shooting that far? No. Will I take the shot? Yeah. And if somebody doesn't like it, too bad. That's my opinion. And until, you know, your walls are covered with freaking racks and you can tell me otherwise, I have no belief in it. It sounds arrogant. People think I'm the most cocky, arrogant, narcissistic thing in the world. But all I care about is success. Like, I care about success. I care about loving deeply. I care about being a true friend. I care about being honest. I care about integrity. I care about everything that in my own heart, I believe, you know, should be cared about. I wouldn't impress it on anybody else, but please don't make mistake the, the, the just absolute strength and conviction with my certainty and with how I do things for anything more than just my opinion. You know, don't, don't mistake it for I'm so arrogant and cocky that I think I'm above everybody because remember before I said, I'm no better than any of you. I'm just the same as you. I just have a different mindset. And and it's nothing more than my opinion. Everybody can have their opinion. It's just that I feel very strongly about mine because I've been able to achieve what... I, I, I know that people have killed bigger deer than me, okay, with a bow. Lots of people have killed way bigger deer than me. But I don't know a ton of people that have killed more. And yeah. And I don't know in such a short time more people that have killed the quantity and the size, the age class on a public land tag. Like, I just... If I had a bunch of those people around me to draw from, to draw the knowledge from, I'd sit there and be a sponge from the standpoint of an open book to considering all those options. But if if somebody tries to change my mind and I look at, you know, what they've done and, the, you know, it's a couple, 5, 10, 15, 20 animals and, and you know, they have a mixed bag of results and, and the age class category really isn't something that, that once a deer gets past its fourth or fifth year and grows its fourth point and starts getting some mass, I, that deer grows a sixth sense. It just does. I don't care if it's got great genetics and huge tie length or not. If it has that maturity, it's evaded a lot in its life. Very smart animal. You have to understand that you can't just go up and shoot it. You, you can just go up and shoot it, yes, but you better be thinking on a different level when you're stalking that animal. All the elements have to come into play. Terrain, wind, um, you know, it's like they can sense it when you're close to them. So if you, you know, if you have a slew of bucks that don't have a lot of age class to them, you're really cutting yourself short because there's plenty of age class in every over-the-counter unit. You just got to look for it and be patient for it. If you're hunting for meat, who cares? But if you're hunting for something to hang on the wall, you know, what are you bringing to the table for yourself? You're not really uh, encouraging yourself to learn as much as you can about what you love so much. And I believe that we as sportsmen truly are the greatest ambassadors that there are for wildlife. I mean, I've learned enough over the years to understand that we do truly give back way more than we take. Um, and every single one of us need to know that. We need to be convictive about the fact that what we do is a, a way of life. It's not a sport. It's more than a ha it's more than a hobby. You know, I, I think that uh um playing chess or playing video games can be a hobby. I think that getting together with uh you know, friends and playing some football or basketball or something, that's a sport. But the what what we do is a lifestyle and we truly give back to what we do is, is buying tags and, and all that money generated towards license sales and tags and, and revenue generated towards hunting equipment and things of that nature allow us to be able to to be one of the only groups 
that actually have the ability to contribute greater than what they take out of any other sport, out of any other activity. So I call I call it a lifestyle. I think it's something that even though I've only done it for less than a decade, um, I'll do it for the rest of my life. And I'll raise my kids that way too. Well, Marlon, this has been an incredible, honest, and real conversation here, and I'm gonna um, we're gonna have to uh, uh, conclude this episode. But I look forward to having you on again because I feel like we've just barely scratched the the surface here, and there's so much in this episode uh to digest for the listeners i'm i'm excited uh for them to hear hear this and it's it's been a very real conversation like i said and i really appreciate your candid uh talk and your straight talk and you know the reality is people can take it however they want but what i hear is true conviction uh i hear honesty uh, I hear sincerity, and um, this is, I uh, truly think, one of the best podcast episodes that I've had here, and I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, I want to uh, uh, commend you on your success that you've had, and and um, I, I look forward to possibly having you on again if you'd be so willing, and um, really appreciate your 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 you know, just down to earth, uh, straight talk. And it seems like in this day and age, uh, that straightforwardness is, seems to be missing, um, you know, across, across the board. So I really appreciate that and, um, want to thank you for being on here with us and look forward to seeing your successes, uh, this fall and, and, um, yeah, just awesome episode. Thanks for just, uh, keeping it real with us. You know, Jay, to be completely candid with you, the honor is so completely mine, my man. You do such an amazing job yourself at what you do. You're a great hunter. You're a great dad. You're uh, you're an exemplary sportsman. You're an amazing person. And you and I share a lot of the same qualities. So it's absolutely more of an honor and a pleasure than anything you've ever come to ask me to do. Um and win, lose, or draw this season, whether I completely biff it and don't kill anything or knock it out of the park, just know I didn't quit. Yeah, that, that, that's a guaranteed. I can, you can take that to the bank that you're not going to quit. And um, I really appreciate you being on and, and just it's been an awesome episode. So buddy, um, until next time, God bless you. And, uh, I uh, just can't wait to see uh, how you uh, do your thing this fall and um, wish you the best of success, okay? Thank you so much, Jay. You have a beautiful evening and bless you as well. All right, buddy. Take care, okay? Yes, sir. Bye. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more, Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.